Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would take hold of our mind at this moment. We pray that you would enable us to focus upon your word. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray that you would teach us your word, that you would apply the message of this text to our lives. We pray that you would grant us humble hearts and a humble spirit to bow before your word, Lord. And through it all, we pray that you would shape us into the character of Christ, make us more like your son in every way. Help us to not simply obtain more theological information that we file away, but that your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would have a transforming impact upon our lives. And Father, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so, years ago, uh, when we first started the church, I worked as a a high school history teacher, uh, teaching world history and U.S. history and government and economics. And, and even when you teach government and economics, uh, typically those subjects are given to social studies teachers because there's a lot of history involved in understanding that. It's the history of various governments, types of governments, the, the history of various economies and how those economies came to be. But in the end, I mean, I thoroughly in, enjoyed it. I, uh, well, the teaching part. There were aspects about it that were difficult. But I enjoyed teaching history. I, I love history. I, I always have. Uh, but I discovered that, that I was one of the few. I was in the minority. Many, many of my students would often complain, why do we have to study all of these dead guys? I mean, what's, what's the point in it? What? How is this going to benefit me? And I would try to let them know, if you plan to vote, this is going to help you, assuming you don't forget everything that you've learned. But that was always a struggle for them. This is so boring, I don't understand why we... And at the end of the day, when all of my arguments failed, I would just simply tell them, well, here's the bottom line, because the state of Texas says you have to learn it to graduate. 
Okay, fine. <laughs> so we'll learn this stuff. But as many of you know, one of the reasons we study history is because when we don't know our history, then we are destined to repeat the mistakes of the past, right? That's a common adage that many of you have heard at some point in the past. We are destined to repeat the mistakes of the past if we do not understand our history. While that is true, it is absolutely true, you know, that's sort of a negative reason, right? We don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past, so let's make sure we, we understand our history. There's a positive way of looking at why we should study it, and this was actually put forward by the 5th century B.C., 5th century B.C., Greek historian and philosopher Herodotus, who said this, quote, when navigating the present, the answers often lie in the past, close quote. I think he's right. When navigating the present, the answers often lie in the past, Recently, I've uh, began watching uh, a documentary series on ancient Greece, which has been fascinating. It's given me some insight into the book of Corinth. As, as you know, Corinth was a leading city in, the, in, in the, the nation of Greece. And uh, as I began watching this documentary series, they begin this series by making the argument that that. Throughout the entire Western world, every place where you see democracy established, or even in the rest of the world, every place where you see people fighting for democracy, it reminds us that we are inextricably linked to ancient Greece. Every place where you find democracy and every place where people are fighting for democracy It reminds us that we are inextricably linked to ancient Greece. In fact, one historian put it this way. He said, quote, there is a great deal of continuity from ancient Greece to modern society. We are part of the same cultural continuum. That's a fascinating thing to think about, that the United States really is, in a great many ways, the political, philosophical, and ideological descendant of ancient Greece. Much of the way they thought, much of their ideology, much of their philosophy, certainly their politics, find themselves in modern-day America, in the modern-day Western world. All of that is to say that even as Christians, it is important that we study the past so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past, but also in navigating the present, oftentimes the answers are found in the past. This is not just true of church history, although that is incredibly important. It is important that Christians have some basic understanding, for example, of the, the, uh, the, the argument that took place in the 5th century between Augustine and Pelagius, that impacts us even today. It's important that we have an understanding of the Protestant Reformation, what that was all about. When we forget 
what the Protestant Reformation is all about, we're destined to repeat the same mistakes. Oftentimes, the answers that we're looking for today can be found in what they dealt with during the Protestant Reformation. I think it's important that we understand things like the Anabaptist movement that came out of the Protestant Reformation, that we understand the Great Awakening that took place in colonial America in the late 1700s, led by Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. All of these things have relevance for us today. But so often we don't take the time to study them. So we repeat the mistakes of the past and we get stuck on this hamster wheel where we are going round and round and round. But it's also good to go beyond church history. It is good to have a theological understanding of the Old Testament. It's one of the reasons that I've been walking through Old Testament books during our Wednesday night study. This started way back when. I started in Genesis and decided that I'm just going to walk through the Old Testament on Wednesday night. So we've done Genesis and then Job. You wonder why Job. Job was a contemporary of Abraham. Genesis and then Job and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now we're walking through Joshua. And it is amazing to see how much of Christ walks through every page of the Old Testament. The book of Job, a lot of people don't realize, I'm getting off script here now, but the book of Job, a lot of people don't realize, that entire book is the life of Christ. The life of Christ on earth from beginning to end is the book of Job from beginning to end. And if you're curious, how is that, then I'll challenge you to go find out. Or you can come talk to me. You can cheat if you want. But the whole book is about Christ. I mean, from chapter 1 to the very last chapter is about the life. It is a picture of the life of Christ in the life of Job. But at the end of the day, you cannot have a full and accurate understanding of the person and work of Christ apart from understanding the foundation that God laid Leading up to Christ, all of the Old Testament, from Genesis 1 all the way to Matthew chapter 1, all of the Old Testament is, is God laying the foundation for the coming of the Messiah. You can't rightly understand and fully understand the person and work of Christ without understanding having a theological understanding, not just a historical understanding of the facts and the places and the names, but how does all of the Old Testament point forward to Christ? You cannot understand Christ unless you first see that in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Yet so often Christians neglect the Old Testament. I mean, I know I did as a young believer. I can't tell you how many times I made it a goal to read through the entire Bible. And then I would get to First Chronicles, and I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm going back to Matthew. All of these begats is driving me nuts. So oftentimes we do neglect uh, the Old Testament when there is much to learn about Christ in the Old Testament. And so Paul himself <clears throat> is going to take the church in Corinth Back to the Old Testament. He's already done that. He's going to continue to do that 
because he wants them to understand, though they are a predominantly Gentile church, they are inextricably linked to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not just about Jews. It's not just about the nation of Israel, the political nation of Israel. The Old Testament is about the people of God. It is primarily about Christ. Christ is the focus of the entire Bible. He is the subject of the entire Bible. The Old Testament is not just a political history about the nation of Israel. And so he is staying on this topic, and he says in verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. These things, clearly Paul is referring to all of the Old Testament events that he's already referenced in the opening verses, right? Remember that? For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, which is very interesting, He's writing to a predominantly Gentile church, and yet he says, our fathers, our fathers were all under the cloud, meaning the nation of Israel. He says, our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, the parting of the Red Sea. We're all baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ, nevertheless, With most of them, God was not pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. And then he says, these things that I've just talked about, he could also be pointing forward. The text is unclear whether the these is referring to what he's just said or whether he's pointing forward to what he's about to say. Very likely it's both. Paul has in his mind the Old Testament. He's still thinking about the Old Testament. So he's saying these things that took place in the Old Testament, what he has just said and what he is about to say, these things took place as examples to us. These things took place as examples to us that we might not desire evil as they did. The Old Testament was written for our instruction, for our benefit, and not just to have historical facts in line, not just to be familiar with Old Testament stories and to be encouraged uh, by them, but so that we can actually grow in our sanctification as Christians. Your soul can actually fed from the Old Testament, just as the people of God had their soul fed from the Old Testament, God can and will use the Old Testament to grow you in your faith in Christ and in your character to be more like Christ. Paul is fond of saying this in various places. Romans chapter 15, verse 4, for example. Paul says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. He's writing to the church in Rome. He's referring to the Old Testament. It was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, the Old Testament, we might have hope. So you need to read it. 
You need the old, listen, just as much as you need the new. I struggle with this emphasis that the New Testament is more important than the old. Yes, that is where we see Christ. Yes, that is where we get the gospel in its fullest sense. But listen, it is all God's word. It is all God's word. It is all written for our instruction. It is all written for our encouragement. We need the old as much as we need the new. Because as Paul says in Romans, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We are encouraged and we are given hope as we see the hand of God working through impossible circumstances in the Old Testament. Right? We're familiar with all of those stories. Moses being told to go and face Pharaoh. Here is a guy who's been shepherding goats for 40 years. He's a fugitive from the law. And now God wants him to take on the most powerful nation on the planet in the ancient world, Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. You know, Moses is thinking, are you out of your mind? (laughs) It was a David and Goliath battle before there was a David and Goliath. You, Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver my people out of slavery from the most powerful nation on earth. And God does that. We're given hope and encouragement from stories like David and Goliath. We're all familiar with that. David, a boy of about 12 years of age, faces a a literal giant nine feet tall. No one else was going to stand against him. David says, I'll do it. Not because he's crazy, not because he's foolish, but because he has incredible faith in the God he serves. He takes five little stones and a slingshot. And then, of course, we know many other stories, Daniel and the lion's den, the list goes on and on and on. That as we read those, what we are taught is not be brave like Moses, not be brave like Daniel. What we are taught is put your faith in God and in what he can do. God can do the impossible with very little. But the greatest source of encouragement and strength we get from the Old Testament is understanding that everything that God did in the Old Testament was for our benefit. Ultimately, everything does in the Old Testament, all of the weaving throughout history, all of the orchestrating of historical events was to prepare the stage for the coming of the Messiah that we might have eternal life. God does all of that for us. Now you know why Paul writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is willing to do all of that for us, for his people, how could he possibly lose even 
Paul, that's the argument that Paul is making in Acts chapter 17. As he stands in the Areopagus in Athens, he says in verses 26 and 27, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Having determined, listen, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. What Paul is wanting the people at the Areopagus to understand is that throughout all of history, all of the work that God has done, orchestrating all of the historical events, putting all of these historical events in order, were all leading up to this very moment where Paul is standing there giving them the gospel. In your own life, that is true. If you were born and raised in a Christian family where you heard the gospel at a, at a young age, understand that throughout all of history, God was navigating all of the historical events that led up to that moment in which you would be born into that family, in that place, and in that time so that you might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the encouragement that we get from the Old Testament. That he does all of this for us so that we might hear the good news of Jesus Christ and receive eternal life. So even when you think about modern times, understand that everything that happens in history from the time of Christ up until now was all leading toward that point. You know, if the Roman Empire had not expanded throughout the entire Mediterranean world, even conquering the southern half of England, then Christianity never would have spread to England. And if Christianity had not spread to England, then there would have been no Anglican church. If there was no Anglican church, then there would be no Puritans to flee England because they were being persecuted by the Anglican church. And they wouldn't have come to the New World. And the gospel wouldn't have come to North and South America. Everything God does is for a reason to advance his kingdom, to advance the gospel. It starts in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, everything that God does is for his glory so that humans might know him and enjoy him and partake in his goodness. But again, notice what Paul says in verse 6 of our text. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That we might not desire evil as they did. How did they desire evil? How did they seek evil? Well, in so many ways. When you read particularly um, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, but in large part, they desired evil by resisting God's will for them. They grumbled and they murmured and complained against God multiple times. Likely what 
Moses has in mind is Numbers chapter 11. I'll just read this to you. First opening verses of Numbers chapter 11, it says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. God just delivered them out of slavery. But they complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. And so the name of that place was called Tibera because of the fire of the Lord burned against them. It goes on to say, then there was a rabble among them who had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Never mind that they were slaves. But somehow, they just remember the good times. We ate the fish that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, but now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. They complained against God, and in the mind of Paul, they desired evil by doing that. He goes on to say in verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Here he's clearly referencing Exodus chapter 32, the golden calf event. You remember the story. Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days. He's not even up there the whole 40 days because at some point God tells Moses, you need to get back down there because the people are already rebelling. And they make a golden calf, and we know that this is what Paul is referencing because he actually cites Exodus 32, verse 6. Scripture says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, the priest, to Aaron, the priest, and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me, so that all the people took the rings and the gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf, and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Ow! This statue, this golden calf, is your God who delivered you. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation saying, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. We're going to have our own Passover. We're going to have a new Passover celebration, a new feast to celebrate this new God of ours. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So Moses has this in mind. 
And so he says to the church in Corinth, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Bear in mind that idolatry, right? Because the church in Corinth, the church in Corinth is not bowing down to statues as, as far as we know. But he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Paul understands that idolatry is not just worshiping statues. Rather, coveting and idolatry are one in the same. Because coveting is simply worshiping a God without form. In fact, Paul makes that very clear in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So covetedness and idolatry go hand in hand. Murmuring stems from covetedness. I want that which God has not given me. I want something different than what I have. So Paul says, don't do that. Because coveting, as I said, is idolatry in the sense that it's worshiping a God without form. Thus, coveting is worshiping money or fame or possession or someone else's spouse or someone else's possessions or someone else's position. All of these various forms of coveting, according to Scripture, amounts to idolatry. It's idolatry. So Paul says to the church in Corinth, don't make that mistake. As a church, don't grumble about what you don't have. He then addresses the problem of sexual immorality in verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. It's not a coincidence that he first addresses the Israelites eating and drinking, and that they engaged in idolatry in light of the fact that Paul has just dealt with that in the church of Corinth in chapter 8, right? There's this problem about what to eat, what not to eat, and there's division among it. So Paul brings up from the Old Testament that, look, Israel had this problem of eating and drinking and how it was related to idolatry and covetedness. Don't fall into that trap. And now... Paul references Israel's past sexual sins and its consequences. And it's not coincidental that he does that because, again, he's had to deal with that in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, right? Where there's this sexual immorality that is going on within the church and they're letting it go. Paul wants them to understand that they are dealing with similar situations and similar temptations that befell the nation of Israel. And he's saying, learn from them that you may not make the same mistake. And so he says in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality 
as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. He's referring to the event that takes place in Numbers chapter um, 25, and of course we know this because of his reference to 23,000 dying in a single day. And this is the event, uh, I'll just remind you of it and describe it for you. This is the event where the Israelites have come out of 40 years of wandering. They've already wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, right? They've already been punished because they wouldn't go into the, the promised land and trust God because of their lack of faith. God sends them into the wilderness. They've come out of the wilderness. They are now encamped across the river Jordan from Jericho. They are preparing to go into the promised land, and this is right after the event. They are in the land of Moab. That's where Moab is. And the king of Moab, Balak, calls for a sorcerer from way north, modern-day Syria. And he says, you need to come down and you need to curse these people. Right? I've heard great things about you, that you're a powerful sorcerer. You need to come down and curse these people. Of course, Balaam comes down. And Balaam says, fine, but understand, I'm only, I can only say what God tells me to say. Right? So understand, Balaam is not a prophet. He's a sorcerer. Right? He's not a good person in the Old Testament. He's not a prophet. He's a sorcerer. Balak calls him. He says, I want you to curse these people. But three times when Balaam says to Balak, all right, well, first I got to offer a sacrifice and see what God wants me to say. Three times God says, bless the nation of Israel. And so he does. Balak becomes furious and says, what good are you? Right? Go back to where you came from. You're not helpful at all. So God uses Balaam, this pagan sorcerer, to bless the nation of Israel. And what do they do after that? The people of Israel, we are told in Numbers chapter 25, right after that, began to engage in sexual immorality with the women of Moab. Amazing. So God commands Moses to hang the tribal leaders. The head of every tribe, hang them. Because if they can't control their people, they need to be gone. And then, of course, you remember the story of Phinehas losing it because one Israelite man takes a Moabite woman into his tent and Phinehas says, that's it, I've had it. Give me a spear, goes into the tent and, of course, kills both of them through. After that, we are told that God brought the plague to an end. There was also a plague that went out, and 23,000 were killed in that one day. The point that Paul is making here and previously in verses 1 to 5 is that even the people of Israel came under the discipline, the punishment, the anger of God for their disobedience. You can't profess to be a part of the people of God. You can't trust in your baptism or your church membership, which there's a good little note, right, because we're doing baptism today. Baptism does not mean you're a Christian. We need to understand that. Being baptized does not mean you're a Christian. Being a member of a Bible-believing church does not mean you're a Christian. Being a Christian means being a follower of Christ. It means wanting to be like Christ. It means striving to be like Christ. So Paul says we need to learn from their example. 
that even the people of God came under the anger, the punishment, the discipline of God because of their disobedience. Once again, in verse 9, he references Christ in the Old Testament. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpent. So we know what passage that he is referring to. He's referring to Numbers chapter 21. He refers a lot to Numbers in this section. Paul may have been doing his morning devotional time out of the book of Numbers when he was writing this section of 1 Corinthians. But in Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 4, we have this story. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Keep in mind, here's the context, the historical context of Numbers chapter 21. The reason they're in the wilderness, they're wandering. This is their 40-year wandering God has already brought them to the promised land. They refuse to go in because of their lack of faith, except for Moses and Caleb and Joshua. No, we need to go. No, we don't want to do it. So God says, fine, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That's your punishment until everybody dies above the age of 20. So now listen to their grumbling against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and bit many of them, and many of them died. Interesting. This is your fault, Moses, that we're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. This is your fault. This is God's fault. The reality was it was their own. But here the people speak against God and against Moses, but yet Paul understands that they are grumbling against Moses and against Christ. Grumbling against Moses and against Christ. It's interesting how to see Paul's Christological view of the Old Testament. That's how he, that's how he understood and interpreted the entire Old Testament. It's all about Christ. But in particular, wherever he sees God, he sees Christ because Paul understands now, post-Damascus Road experience, that Jesus is God. I mean, Paul is the one who wrote Colossians 1.19, right? In him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. John sees it. Gospel of John begins that way with John making the argument that in the beginning, Jesus created all things. Genesis chapter 1, that's Jesus there. So Paul as well sees in the Old Testament where they grumble against God, they are grumbling against Christ. So here again in verse 10, as we continue on, 9 and 10, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. So here again, Paul is addressing the problem of them grumbling against 
God, against Christ, and against Moses. And he says, don't do that. Because the sin of grumbling against God, against what God has provided, is simply shaking your fist to God and saying, you don't know what you're doing. That's why grumbling in the Old Testament was such a sin. It's still a sin today, by the way. To grumble against God is to say to God, you do not know what you are doing. And in that text that Paul is addressing, that he is referencing, they are grumbling against God, and they're grumbling against the leader that God had given them. You don't know what you're doing, God. You gave us the wrong leader. So God punishes them for their sin. Verse 11, he wraps up by reminding them again. Notice he repeats his words from verse 6. In verse 6, he says, now these things took place as examples for us. And then verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has Those of us who are living in the last days, the end of the ages, right? We are living in the last days. The Old Testament still has value for us. We can still learn from it. We can not only be inspired by the amazing works of God, but we can learn from the mistakes of Israel. Namely, we can learn that God does and will punish his people when they step out of line, when they grumble against what God has done, against what God is doing, against what God has provided for them. This is true of New Testament believers as well. That's why this text is here, right? This text is written to a New Testament church. We are a New Testament church. This text applies to this church and every evangelical church today just as much as it applied to the church in Corinth. And so as I titled this morning's sermon, Do Not Test the Lord Your God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would help us to learn the lesson that the Apostle Paul is teaching the church in Corinth, that we might not grumble and complain against you, against what you have provided for us, against what you have done for us, that we might not come under your displeasure just as they We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to take this lesson and this message to heart. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we go to the Lord's